Everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. My guest today is Brad Olson. And quick disclaimer, Brad: sequels always suck. Yeah, <laughs> just, just, just. So but you the know. actors get paid more on the second movie, even though they're much worse films. Yeah, so, there we so. go. There we go. The writing suspect, <laughs> the directors, but the actors get paid more. No, so appreciate you coming back on because I think the text I sent you was like, "Holy crap, what happened over the last month?" Yeah. Uh, so let me do this. Let me start. Uh, and just for the audience, give the uh, quick elevator pitch for Recurrent. Yeah. So Recurrent's a firm that uh, my partner, Mark Laskin and uh, Oliver Doolin, the three of us started it about six years ago. And the thought process was we were coming out of or coming through a huge energy dislocation. There were going to be opportunities on the long side going forward. Um, you could say that COVID deferred but did not uh cancel the our view that you know there is an inflationary cycle coming and and that's kind of what we're investing around and the name of the firm's recurrent because everything we do is driven by long-term historical research where we try to figure out what is today's market look like and which markets of the past that people aren't paying attention to does today's market most closely resemble and we'll get into that, but just real quick to kind of start with, I'm going to throw some numbers at you. Last month, near term, WTI down 22%. Large caps down 27%. The Dow's only down about 1% over the last month, believe it or not. And then here's kind of the disconnect I want to touch on a little bit. If you look at the three-year strip uh, WTI, it's down 10%. The four-year strip's down 6%. So kind of my two questions are, one, just what happened to oil price? Let's touch on that a little bit. And then why do stocks trade with the near month on WTI when their cash flow durations are more like three and four years, and that didn't get hit as hard? Yeah, uh, you know, obviously, uh, my, my, uh, my superpower, but also my fatal flaw is lengthy answers. So I'm going to try my best to keep it punchy. Uh, recessionary fears, specifically fears around what the higher price of energy is doing to the global economy has, uh, you know, kind of ripped everything's face off for the non-energy sector starting in January. But energy has finally kind of caught up with this recessionary narrative in the last month or two. And why has energy reacted without any real resilience, despite the fact that valuations are cheap and cash flows are strong and you've got buyback programs in place. You know, that kind of comes down to at any given time, who's buying and who's selling energy. And when we look at the fund flow data, as much as it pains me to say this, uh, the broad fund flow data, your average American investor despite all of the positive things that you just talked about for the oil price, the strip, the average American investor is buying tech every time it sells off and they're selling the little bit of energy they did own every time energy is strong. And so, you know, at the end of the day, uh, there's fundamentals, which obviously go back to the oil price and the, the how many years of cash flow we're talking about. But then there's also what is the actual supply and demand for the equities themselves and right now, I would say your average investor is not convinced that the energy recovery trade is a three or a four year story. The average investor says this little energy recovery we've seen since COVID probably dies with the recession and at, coming out of the recession, I probably want to take a shot on tech instead of energy. We disagree with that uh, for a lot of reasons that we can talk about, but, but that's kind of the overall view as we so have it right now. So, and and that's where I want to spend the most of the time talking, but real quick before we get there, is that sentiment on energy driven by we sucked over the last 15 years and lost people a lot of money? Is it the green problem and we're polluting the, the planet, both of them, something else? What What's driving that? Because what I've said on the podcast is I think it's both of them. 
And I think what changes the world is when a CIO becomes a former CIO because they didn't have energy exposure. And, you know, at 2% of the S&P 500, that's not going to happen. But we ticked up, you know, a month or two ago above 5% on the S&P 500. And we're starting to feel relevant again. Maybe that was in our own minds. Yeah, no, look, I, I think uh, the, the kind of... Uh, Obviously, you're, you know, we both know that there's a energy finance community specifically on Twitter that, you know, was in a heated debate about has energy run too far? Are things too good? And I laughed a lot about this debate because I spent some time in Europe talking to investors as recently as as May. And in Europe, here, the, here there's a war kind of going on a few hundred miles to the east of offices that I was meeting in in Germany or Switzerland or France. And the average allocator kind of said, like, when can I stop caring about energy? You know, like, when can I, like, I would love for it to stop outperforming because I don't really have an allocation to it. I have to answer questions about energy and inflation for my clients, even here in Europe. And I'd love to not have to talk about it at all. So for a lot of guys, it's a little bit of like hitting the snooze button, hoping it goes away. <laughs> and what's what's also kind of funny, right, is you read, uh, obviously, it's much more kind of trading oriented community, but you read social media, EFT, and there's this like heated battle about where energy is. Is it overbought? Is it oversold? Is it an opportunity or is it a you know bull market trap or whatever you want to call it? And I think folks like that have to remember that in the hundred trillion dollar global capital markets like that battle is like a tiny red anthill where there are ants in like the battle of their lives in a pitched argument <laughs> over $80 or $120 oil and the average allocator in Switzerland who's got $600 billion in a pension system is like looking down with a magnifying glass and saying I I've never I haven't touched this in the last 10 years I don't know why they're so fired up down there, but <laughs> but like it's completely irrelevant to a lot of these global scale investors. So I hear you that, you know, on a tick by tick basis, I think we got to four and a half or five percent of the S&P. But for your average active allocator who is making a decision or even individuals who are making decisions about buying an ETF or selling an ETF, this has clearly remained a highly skeptical market. Um, and, you know, of course, as we've moved into this more recessionary environment where we're starting to see some economic slowdown, uh, indicators, you've had a lot of people who have been hitting that snooze button and they've almost kind of said, sweet, I've gone from not owning the one thing that's going up. And now I can just say, well, I don't own it, but it's going down the same as everything else. So for a lot of allocators, this sell-off in energy has been kind of a relief because it allows them to not think about energy uh, the same way that they weren't thinking about energy before about January of, of this year. So kind of given that, what are you telling clients these days? What's, what's kind of the, the pitch? What's the outlook? What are you guys thinking? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. You know, it sounds corny. Uh, but when we started recurrent, you know, one of the hardest things about starting a company is coming up with a name, right? Like you're, you're kind of sitting there rubbing your forehead, like, <laughs> let's call it um, Stone Ridge Partners. You know, everyone's right. coming up with a, with a stone or some rock formation. And, and we came up with this idea that a lot of the work we did internally really was focused on trying to go through history. Because today, right, everybody points at the energy market. And whether it's like an algorithmic shop that programs its trading algos based on what the market has looked like over the last two, three, five years, or it's just people's memory, most guys who have traded energy remember that energy was the worst thing in the COVID recession, right? So recession equals terrible for energy. There aren't many guys who even go back to 08 and 09 and say, wait, why did energy outperform everything during a really nasty financial credit crisis recession in 0809 why did oil run back up to 100 bucks while the eurozone was on the verge of breaking up um okay well let's go back to like the 90s and the 2000s during the tech bubble when gdp was roaring you were in that kind of clinton dot com economy with the strongest gdp that really we've seen even even today that's the last strongest bit of gdp growth and oil price was 
was in the tank that whole time. And when you had, you know, the recession of the early 2000s, energy was a relative outperformer. And so as you go further and further back and you say, well, wait, now in the 80s, in the 70s, energy was actually an outperformer in almost every single non-COVID recession. Why do we talk about recession being a kiss of death for energy? The reality is, right, half the guys who invest in energy today get fired on a 5% drawdown with apologies to all my buddies at Citadel and, and Millennium, but but you know, you have a bunch of and guys. Kane Anderson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And so everybody operates in energy because it's not a long-term capital investment today. There aren't long-term allocators in it. It's a hedge fund, it's a trading vehicle. You know, there's a lot of, and I love EFT and I learn a lot from it, but when I read it, there's a huge culture of like, Remember when you said oil was a good buy 20% ago, moron, you know, like yeah. there's, there's a lot of that kind of, you've been wrong for 20%, you know, hang your head in shame and, and leave. And unfortunately, as a guy who's built a long only firm over the last six years, I don't have the option to quit and find a new job every time energy pulls back, even if it feels like it's every other month. And so I kind of have to look back at a longer, you know, 50, 60, 70 year data set and say, Wait, the bad news is in a recession, stock markets don't do well. But the good news is energy actually tends to be pretty defensive in a recession and outperform coming out of a recession. Because guess what? All of the problems that created inflation before the recession are going to be there on the back end of a recession. And so I think that is a conversation I'll say we're trying to have with allocators. But most allocators are like, dude, right now, you know what I'm not trying to do? defend a new idea to a client who's watching everything down 30% year to date. And then when I tell them my new idea is the most volatile and underperforming sector from the COVID recession, now it's a longer, more annoying conversation that I don't really want to invite into, into my office. And so, look, obviously, uh, there's a contrarian element to any kind of energy investment today. But what I will say is like, we do, we do go back and look at history and say, and I'd love to talk about this some more, you know, I would argue that the Fed has historically had almost no impact on inflation for 50 or 60 years, and that recessions do very little to the structural rate of inflation. They take a little bit of short-term kind of fizz out of the economy. But if you didn't fix the inflationary problem, it's still gonna be there when the recession's over. And I think that people investing in this economy don't appreciate that this inflationary cycle is gonna return as soon as the economy comes back after whatever choppy period we're going through right now. Is the, I think what's, underappreciated uh, about this and somebody tweeted this out. So I need to give credit. I think it was Blake, uh, Blake street bomber that tweeted this out. So I'll give credit there, but I've also agreed with this is I do think historically the Ron Paul tinfoil wearing hat gold bugs have been right. That the feds just printed too much money over the last call it 50, 60 years, you know, we're saying that damn Nixon took us off the gold standard. I, I've believed in that. I think it's been totally hidden, though, by the fact of just the technological innovations we've gone through, the computer and all that, that have been deflationary. Yeah. And, and so it's kind of hidden it. And if you're sitting here in 2022 and the Fed just went, you know, last 50, 60 years, we've kind of gotten away with it. Let's see if we really print some money, which they did kind of through COVID. I don't know that we're sitting here staring at technological innovations that are going to be deflationary. Yeah. You know, so I always hated when a management team would walk into the office. Hey, Chuck, this time it's different. I thought it's never different, but it feels different. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a lot to get your head around because the fed, I feel like people have such strong opinions about the fed that, you know, we kind of, uh, like there are times when you're in an allocator meeting and we kind of joke that you, when you go and you pitch an investment, 
you are literally the world's lamest rock band, right? Like you're going into every meeting and you're like, I think we should hit them with inflation now. Like, no, man, this, this concert will get out of control if we go inflation this early. You know, it's like, can't do Enter Sandman as the opening song of the Metallica concert. Like the police will be called in halfway through. Now, of course, in real life, there's a bunch of like sleepy people sitting around a table and kind of, you know, but there is something about like, hey, the Fed is an emotional debate. And, you know, it's funny what I spent during the last, you know, couple months as there's been this kind of energy beatdown. There's obviously, you know, my models, okay, let's say company X has a 40 or $50 crude kind of cost structure break even. So everything from 50 to 120 is, let's say their economic profit in the current environment. Oil goes from 120 to 90. Okay, well, I can come up with a reason why, as an operationally levered entity, you know, ENPX or ENPY is down 40% on the pullback. Like I can, I can back solve for that in a model. But what I find to be a little bit more interesting, and for for the way I like to think about, you know, the market, I actually went through kind of microfilms uh, of different newspapers. And I, I'm not microfilms, like I'm not in a library with a magnifying glass, but but you go through different uh, archives on the internet and you go through the late 60s and the early 70s. What you mentioned, obviously Nixon took the economy off the gold standard. And of course, at the time people were like, he just, he freed us of all of these unnecessary constraints. He's given us a lot of flexibility. Um, the Fed has more, you know, policy flexibility to manage the economy now. And that was obviously a big headline grabber. But what was really fascinating is that in the late 60s and the early 70s, you had this rip roaring economy. Every headline in the business section was economists agree 1970s going to be the best best decade yet because so many things are going right for the American economy once we kind of end the Vietnam War. There's going to be even more investment coming back home. And then by 71, 72, you see these inflationary pressures bubbling up for the first time in 30 years. And just like today, nobody is used to inflation. So in the early 70s, people are like, well, we're going to have to hike rates a couple of times. That'll settle everything down. And then it's going to be back to business as usual. And by the time you had real inflation, oil price tripled, what happened? The Fed said, inflation's up, oil price tripled, we need to hike the heck out of the, the Fed funds rate and get a hold on inflation. The, the issue is, as you know, many people have made this comment, but I know, you know I've read it a bunch of different places, you can't, you can't hike your way to more oil in the economy, right? And so the Fed created a recession, oil went from three bucks to 10 bucks, but oil stayed at 10 during the recession. And so that these are kind of the things that as we kind of think through the like, it's easy to blame on the Fed. But the reality that that when we look back at the real kind of long term multi-decade trends in the 60s, you had a belief that you didn't need to drill more wells. You could hike your way out of an inflationary problem in the 70s. The government ingeniously put a cap on the price of oil and said, that'll show them. And of course, the industry said, well, we're definitely not drilling now. And of all people, Jimmy Carter, you know, cardigan wearing Democrat, took off price controls in 78. CapEx went through the roof. And shocker, three years later, inflation was secularly falling, even as the economy was making kind of new highs and growing much faster than it had in the previous decade. And so for us, like, there are so many explanatory variables like Fed policy, GDP, um, all these other, like how efficient cars were, the only variable over a 60 or 70 year time period that has any correlation, and I truly mean any correlation greater than zero, is are you spending money investing in new wells? And when we talked on your policy debate, uh, you know, one of the things I said was giving the energy industry free money to drill wells is the only way to actually fix inflation, but everyone always hates that. So they just end up saying, let's hike rates. And guess what hiking rates does? It makes guys drill fewer wells and it prolongs the inflationary problem. So I know that's a lot, but, but that's kind of, we've been focused on this idea that inflation is actually going to be more prolonged because the focus right now is what can the Fed do for us? And I think the answer is the Fed can't really do anything for you 
if you're not increasing the supply of commodities in the economy. So the Milton Friedman in me just rolled over in, in, my, gra- <laughs> in my grave hearing all that. But so did oil as a percent of GDP or whatever metric you want to use, i.e. the point being, was oil way more important to the economy 60 and 70 years ago versus today just with our energy efficiency? And does that still hold? Is that yeah? So is that a decent question to ask? No, it it is a decent question to ask. I think the things that um, so if you look at the '70s, oil is a much bigger percentage. But how much plastic, how much rubber, how much uh, different energy inputs crept into other parts of our lives? You know, you might have your you know metal cup or your your glass cup. And today we're just going through 10 of these a day at our, at our desk, right? So yes, energy as a percentage of GDP has definitely gone down. And the amount of services, the amount of you know financial services, consulting, all that other stuff has obviously grown uh, dramatically as a portion of GDP. But when you look at the actual share of GDP that is non-services, energy still goes into a huge percentage of the things that we do and use every day. And I think what's really important too, right, is obviously airline tickets, but also Amazon Prime, right? You know, I'm not the only one getting suggestions of if you delay this package delivery by two days, we're going to give you, you know, uh, two Amazon points credit to your account, right? right? Like there's different ways that costs and inflation are kind of working their way through the economy. And I think that the key thing is, right, you've got complete Fed policy flexibility when oil prices are restrained. And historically, we've kind of seen in the in the 80s, the oil industry did what we're now because it's our our recent past. In the early 80s, the oil industry did exactly what we think of when we think of the shale boom. Oil, uh, oil price caps were removed. CapEx tripled in the next three years. And the amount of drilling on long dated 10 year projects in Alaska, places like that went through the roof. And when oil went up to 30 and then crashed back to 10, a lot of these projects were too long in the tooth to be canceled. And so there was an outspend even as oil price fell. And, you know, it's funny because everyone kind of naturally is a buyer of energy, not a producer. So the newspaper is always right from energy is always a headache. It's never presented as a good thing. And that was the same in the 80s. There was an article I was reading, you know, the other day that kind of said, here we are, GDP is 6% growth, the most it's been since, you know, the 60s. And in 1983 or four, 6% growth and no inflation. Who'd have thunk? And, And that was the end of the debate, right? There was no discussion of why does oil price keep falling as the GDP keeps growing? Is it because we're drilling too much in an already crashing oil market, <laughs> right? And so I think one of the things, you're, you're absolutely right. The oil intensity of the economy consistently drops, but the energy intensity of the economy doesn't drop as fast as the oil intensity of the economy does. And as we're finding out in this kind of post-Russia world, the prices of global coal and global gas are obviously heavily influenced by the fact that you don't have the same exportable barrels floating around the world as you did a year or two ago. Gotcha. Gotcha. The, uh, we're back. Hey, yeah. baby, we actually matter. I almost believed you. I was like, I was like sitting there. So, so in terms of, let's get back to talking to clients. So let me summarize to see if I've got it. Uh, let's see if I can play salesman for recurrent. If I walk into a meeting, it's, Hey, probably are heading into recession. If we're not already there, actually, believe it or not, oil has performed better in historical recessionary periods. Here's why. Oh, by the way, until we change policy, and it's got to come from the U.S. because at the end of the day, I honestly don't believe there's any excess capacity out in the world. I don't think the Saudis have it. Yeah. Uh, You know, Russia with all their mess, they don't have it. Venezuela's not going to get its act together. Iran's Iran, whatever. I mean, it really has to come from the United States. And so long as we have the policies we do, I was talking to a CFO of one of the big multi-billion dollar oil and gas companies and said, how's it going? He goes, man, 
I haven't gotten a nasty call in a year. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> he's like, I'm just going to keep sending checks out. I don't want to pick up rigs, have to deal with all that mess. He's just like, I just want to keep sending checks out because people are happy when I do that. So, so it, it does have to come to the, come from the U S. And so until we see kind of policy shift on supercharging drilling in the United States, you're saying the inflationary pressure is going to be there and that ultimately oil is going to outperform. Did I get it somewhat right? You got it right. I mean, what we're, I am a big believer philosophically. We are, you know, at recurrent, like get rid of the variables that make people emotional and, and stick with an explanation that is time tested, makes sense. And it was really actually kind of uplifting for me to go back to the articles from the seventies and read these headlines where, you know, Exxon is pleading, like, please allow me to sell oil for more than $5 a barrel. I promise you, I will go find some oil. And the government was like, best profitability in 10 years. And they're asking for more. Can you believe these guys? And I thought like, you can't blame it on ESG because ESG wasn't a thing. This is just a human, like you're profiting on broad misery in the economy and you're asking me for a better deal. Like the, the nuts on you, it's right. incredible. And you look and you say, energy did great in 73. In 74, we went into a recession, energy outperformed, but nobody writes you a thank you note for losing only 20% in energy. Right. Kind of how I feel after the last couple of months. You know? <laughs> and, and, and then as we kind of ground through the rest of the, the kind of economically crappy 1970s, energy compounded a four-bagger and the broad equity market was, was basically 100% return. And you kind of say, that felt bad. The economy was bad. Energy was always getting threatened by DC. It felt crummy the whole way through and you quietly outperformed by 300%. You know, and, and so that is, I think, the outcome, certainly that, that we think of as kind of a bull, that's a bull case outcome, right? It's like, it's not gonna feel good even in the bull case, because unfortunately in energy, you tend to really make money when the rest of the economy is, is kind of in the tank. And so you're never gonna get like a, man, thank you so much, everything's so awesome. It's gonna be like we experienced in the last 12 months, like everything else is down 20%. I have a 3% allocation to your fund and it's up, thanks. You know, and yeah. you're kind of like, <laughs> great. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think your sales pitch is right that until, and look, Jimmy Carter, of all the presidents, you know, bomb Cambodia, Nixon, uh, you know, Gerald Ford kind of coming in, whip inflation now, Republican, and then Jimmy Carter, please readjust your thermostat. Like, right. which one of these guys is the most likely to give incentives to allow more drilling? Not Carter, but Carter was the guy who did it because Carter was the guy who said, guys, we've tried 10 years of yelling at them to reduce inflation. We've taxed them. We've capped their prices. We, we've created the EPA to basically police them. It's time to let them make money and see if they can get us out of inflation. And a few years later, you know, Paul Volcker's chomping on a cigar saying, I did it, right. you know, and uh, look, history is written by the winners and Volcker definitely got to write his own history as he lasted into the 80s much longer than any of these guys. But it, it is fascinating as you go back and you look through and you say, People angry, people angry about oil prices demanding that Exxon get taxed and not be allowed to drill more is makes me feel better knowing we're just as dumb as people <laughs> 50 and 60 years ago. And it's not, you know, a lot of the idiocracy jokes you hear around, like we're the dumbest generation, you know, people just get dumber. You're like, makes me feel better to go back and find a fairly consistent level of intelligence, <laughs> not, not a high level of intelligence. <laughs> but a consistent level of intelligence through through time. So that's the beta. What are you telling clients on the alpha letter, the alpha level? Do you guys have a theme of yeah. we want to play Permian, we want to play oil sands in Canada? Do you have any color there? You know, it's funny. I, I made a joke when when we were about to start recording that, you know, I, I I feel a little bit like, uh, as, as on the last pod, we talked about, you know, philosophy major from rice, I'm a total accidental energy investor. And whenever people talk about type curves, it's kind of like, uh, I'm going to go grab, grab a drink. You guys need anything, you know, <laughs> yeah. like 
no geology. And look, as I've worked in kind of places like Tudor Pickering or Millennium, where the focus is intense on those geological kind of which play is the best, I've been exposed to it. And, I, and I've kind of grown in my conviction that that maybe some guys deliver alpha that way. But, but for me, the economy is a mess. Uh, inflation in the oil field from everything I hear is 50 and 60%. And, you know, I'll give you an anecdote. My wife is, uh, my wife is in insurance. She puts together complicated insurance packages for energy and non-energy companies. And last year, one of her OFS clients was like, look, I cannot pay your, I do not want to pay your fee this year. 2021 is still very much like growing pains. We're still re recovering. It feels still very COVID here in terms of our economics. Next year, when we do our insurance policy next year, charge us kind of whatever you want next year. And, and obviously, like, you know, she she was fair and she did a very good job if she's watching this. But <laughs> but her client's like, what did when did we say that? It's horrible right now. Like I'm paying guys who fail drug tests 200K, you know, like right. I can't pay you that, you know, and, and it's kind of, she's looking at me like, honey, oil price is over a hundred. Like, are these guys trying to like, you know, are these guys trying to scam me? You know, and I'm like, no, their life actually still sucks in the actual operating field level. All my buddies in OFS, all my buddies work at ENPs, like my ENP buddies are like, we're trying to put ourselves up for sale. And it turns out none of our puds are worth anything. You know, all my OFS buddies are, well, they fired three guys I used to work with and bumped my pay 10, 20%. And they're like, well, you've got to do all four guys' jobs for 1.2 times the money. So you're I heard, I, I, and I'll get the stat wrong, but you know, you wear the green hat when you're the the rookie out in the, the field. So everybody knows stay away from you. <laughs> And when the uh, when the 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 alarms go off, they know to grab you, run. <laughs> but uh, I heard that in on some projects, as many as half of the people running around in the oil field are wearing a green hat. I believe it. I mean, look, like this is an industry level, and you know, I don't want anyone coming up to to my wife and asking her who her clients are. But like <laughs> an industry stat, she's like. The craziest thing is profitability is not jumping up higher for a lot of these companies in the field and insurance bills are going through the roof because the insurance companies that sit over in London who don't know anything about our industry, you know, a guy's sitting over at Guinness like, mate, fatalities, injuries, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, it's a 200% increase to your premium. And all these guys are like, dude, I haven't started making money yet. And so it's funny, like going back to that little EFT anthill, like EFT is like, RSI is overbought, you're a moron. And you're kind of sitting there like, guys, if you're really trying to think about this as a multi-year cycle, the guys who make this cycle possible still hate life. You know, like, so you're talking about calling time on the cycle. And when I was in, you know, France, Ireland, uh, England, or London, you know, like, well, guys, how much longer can oil really run? Like, well, I'm not talking about WTI or Brent price running, but the idea that we're calling time on an inflationary cycle 14 months in, we're refusing to call time on a 14 year tech cycle. Uh, we're still buying the dips on a 14 year tech cycle. We're calling the end of a 14 month energy cycle we never even invested in. And the companies in that industry haven't even noticed that the cycle is necessarily happening beyond the like EP guys who are the first to benefit. You know, it, it, it does bring up a lot of really fascinating kind of philosophical debates, like namely, um, what do we need to see change before we can feel like, hey, maybe this cycle is getting long in the tooth? And to me, the tightness in the field, and, and again, just going back to the what, what theme, what investable theme, when you talk to the companies themselves, they're like, dude, diesel is 180 bucks a barrel. Well, I mean like, like steel is up, labor is up, diesel's almost double. So everything that I buy out in the field is up 50 to 150%. So our big theme is, can you build an energy portfolio where your ante or, or blind or whatever you want to say at the poker table, where, what are, where are the companies that can voluntarily ratchet down CapEx and, during these ugly inflationary kind of turbulent times that we're seeing without their production collapsing? Like, so we're not really, you know, small cap, like 
shale guys necessarily because we are looking for assets where the actual where the reserve life is longer more conventional asset type declines because to us like hey if you can refuse to hire another rig and experience a three percent decline in the next 12 months you're going to be in the catbird seat versus a company that says dude i've got to pay whatever the incremental rig costs because otherwise i'm going to decline 20 percent, and that's going to crush my cash flow at a time when I should really be reinvesting into the cycle or I should be trying to grow or maintain production. So that's kind of the big micro theme is the economy is a mess. Overall inflation and oil prices are going to stay strong. But how can you participate in those oil prices and commodity prices without constantly having to go out and hire an incremental rig staffed by rookies that cost three times more than the rig you already have running in wherever wherever it is that you're drilling. I got you. And then does the current theme du jour of the EMP companies, let's buy back stock, let's pay out uh dividends. Does that play into the into the theme any or um you know look there's no doubt that structurally all the companies across energy are uh in a return of capital mode and so part of the reason that we like guys who's let's just say the lower your your decline rate you know the longer your asset life the less you have to spend on capex to maintain your assets every year the more cash hypothetically you should have to buy back stock and pay dividends and i think like when we talk to folks we get a lot of questions particularly I want to be gentle here, but like, you know, generalists who don't spend any time in this space, the last update they got was, oh, you know, the biggest we've ever allocated to energy was in 2016, you know, and so we're just generally grumpy anytime somebody brings (laughs) up energy in, in our office and you talk to guys and they're like, isn't it great that all these terrible CEOs are doing the right thing for shareholders now. And, and, you know, the thing that I think you find when you when you go into a lot of pitch meetings is there there are times when you kind of say, like, I've been thinking about this a lot and and I, I have some thoughts and they're like, no, I just wanted to say that, you know, like <laughs> you know, and we, we had a, a meeting recently where someone said, like, well, isn't it great that all these terrible energy CEOs are now really focused on returning capital? And I kind of said, like, all right, well, you know, before we move on, could I just ask, like, were they the worst CEOs in the world during shale? And are they really good CEOs now? And like, were they visited by three spirits at some point during COVID? You know, like, like when did this transformation, how real is the transformation? Because, you know, the same way, I don't like to think of the Fed as the reason for anything good, anything bad, because a lot of times I think there's not a lot of explanatory power. And similarly, it's like the CEOs are responding to a world where the CEO says, all right, you know, let's just kind of use a semi-defensible financial metric. Like I'm trading at three times EBITDA or two and a half times EBITDA. So the market is basically giving me credit if I can grow at something accretive to 40% cash flow yield. Even in today's market where oil field inflation is 60, 50, 40%, throw in whatever number you like, I don't have a lot of things that are rock solid locks for being life of asset 40% EBITDA or better. Because in order for me to do it, I'm taking risk and I have to be accretive to my current implied. Or, or your engineer screwed up the engineering. <laughs> I mean, let's be real. Right. Yeah. There, there is, if anything there, looks that good. Yeah. Right. There is a failure rate. There is an error. There is an error uh, margin in everything that involves dynamite, diesel fuel, and being outside in 120 degrees, right? Like right. we all know that. And so there's a certain amount of, I think, a rational CEO. Who, who a few years ago said, dude, I'm being valued at like a five or, or a 10% EBITDA yield. I can find wells that deliver more than a 10% EBITDA yield. The market's giving me, like for every dollar I put into a well, the market's giving me a buck and a half of value. I am a rational actor and I am putting a buck in the ground and getting a buck and, buck and a half out of the stock market. Today, you put a buck in the ground and the stock market gives you 70 cents. And you're rash, you're the same dude reacting to incentives as you were before. You know, you're not Ebenezer Scrooge. There is no, you know, kind of deathbed conversion going on. The same CEO that was like stock market was telling me a buck, buck and a half was the value of my dollars. 
today is now telling me I'm worth 60 or 70 cents, returning cash is the rational actor move. And so I think the reality is, you know, it's funny in the 70s, uh, you'll you'll kind of get a kick, I think, out of this this little anecdote. But like going through and reading, I like, why isn't anyone buying back their stock in the 70s when things were good, but the government was preventing more drilling? Well, there was effectively a stock manipulation rule that meant you couldn't buy back your own stock because you must have insider info and you're manipulating your own stock valuation. And so <laughs> you have all these hilarious press releases of oil and gas companies going out because they can't buy their own stock. They're scared to death of drilling a well and finding out that the government allowed oil price has gone from five to three. And so they go out and they buy department stores. Oh, yeah. And Montgomery you, Ward. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, and, uh, Montgomery Ward, right? Yeah. And like you're looking through this stuff and, you know, all of like the like this isn't a bad CEO. Like I don't have any reason to think the CEO of mobile was a dumb guy, but he's like, we need a business where we can charge what the product costs. And ladies fur coats are the only business that I see that, <laughs> that we can charge what the business costs to run. And you see these hilarious things where you're like, why, like, why did these guys buy a speedboat manufacturer? And it's like, oh, because they had all this cash flow. They were scared of what would happen if they reinvested. The market was not giving them the valuation premium for them to take that risk. And it's very similar to where we are today. So, you know, again, I would be shocked if Pioneer traded at five times book value of assets. Scott Sheffield should, would, will go back and drill wells because the market's saying like, hey, even with all the chances of failure, we're giving you a huge premium to the book value of your assets to go out and grow that business. But as long as those multiples are, you know, 0.5 or 0.7 or one times, you know, there's no incentive to go out and be really aggressive about growth, especially if you have to go ask an investor who's like, I don't have any new money coming into the, like, you know, XLE is a passive fund, but the XLE has seen only outflows in the last 12 months. And you're like, if the best energy tape in years is, hey, the index representative ETF is seeing only outflows, it kind of gives you an idea of how a CEO would be received if he went to BlackRock and said, hey, can you guys like put a little side pocket together for me to go, you know, drill wells with it's like we're only getting outflows from our energy products. So why would we give you money to go drill more energy? Yeah, no, that uh, that makes a lot of sense because Charlie Munger's right. Show me your incentives. I'll show you your behavior. You know, he's, yeah, he's definitely right about that. The uh, the other thing, too, that to your point and Mark Meyer, your former compatriot at, uh, at Tudor Pickering Holt co-host of BDE with me. And his whole point, uh, about profitability was first quarter Exxon, they made more money than God, all that. They still had, even when you take out the shutting down the Russian operation and the loss there, yeah. their net, in their net income margin was 10%. Yeah. I mean, the average income margin of an S&P 500 company is 12 percent. Yeah. So profitability wise, I mean, if that's gouging, I don't you know, I don't get it. Well, so. yeah. I mean, again, like, you know, time is a flat circle or whatever that true detective uh, Matthew McConaughey quote is like, right. you know, the uh, doing all this this research over the last couple of months, like the Senate in 1973 or 74 commissioned a report to look into the extraordinary profits of the 10 largest American oil companies. And they came back with the damning conclusion that after a Arab oil embargo, this industry was earning half a percent more return on capital than the average Dow Jones industrial constituent. And you can just kind of imagine like the Senator in 1975 being like, who put this together? You know, like, <laughs> I asked you what? for numbers. Yeah. I didn't ask you for these numbers. <laughs> I asked you for something I could kind of sell to the who public. Am I, who am I firing on the staff? I know. Yeah. And, and you look back and you, you kind of say like, look, this is the natural, you know, unfortunately, right? Nobody ever buys oil because it's like, hey, dad, I think when I turn 18, I'm going to take all my saved up money and just buy oil, right? Like there's nothing you buy only what you need. And so people resent having to pay more for what they need. And there's just a certain amount of like, why is nobody mad about Apple's 30% net income margin? 
because everybody kind of made a you know consensual decision of buying the iPhone or the watch rather than buying a competitor product or you know they didn't you didn't need necessarily the Apple product but with oil it's like it's a commodity right nobody ever says like thanks for finding it for only two dollars a gallon um and you shouldn't expect them to I mean all commodity markets are kind of treated this way but it is amazing that every when we talk about kind of why it's so important to do historical research, you know, I graduated in the mid 2000s. I haven't seen anything other than the the kind of beginning or the the middle innings of a China driven inflationary mini cycle. Really, in retrospect, that oil cycle was was significant, but it wasn't as long dated as the 70s. So I saw the China cycle. I saw the collapse of the China cycle and I saw shale kind of come and, you know, shoot a bazooka at at the the rubble that remained after the china inflationary cycle was over right? shot a five million barrel a day bazooka right yeah hey i heard you guys needed this <laughs> you know and uh and so looking back now the crazy thing is you know my dad is visiting right now and he's 76 and you know my dad's been retired for a few years and he's like yeah you know, I guess, uh, yeah, I remember like, I remember the gas lines. I remember, you know, the outrage at how much, you know, money the oil industry was making, but you know, he's a guy who has no economic incentive to work anymore. He's retired. And so his experience is kind of just rattling around. There's none of that making its way into the investment profession today, you know, and like even Bill Ackman, who put out an interesting and thoughtful discussion of how the seventies are similar to today, and I hate it when people put out reports like around the time I'm putting out a report, <laughs> like I hope he didn't say the same thing. But Bill Ackman was like, you know, uh, Arthur Burns was a wimpy Fed guy. Volcker was a was a strong Alpha man. Male. Yeah, you know, it's like we need to be as courageous as Volcker. By the way, it would also be helpful if you were allowed to export energy or drill wells. And you're kind of like energy's role in inflation as Europe pays $300 a barrel equivalent for gas and the world is experiencing, you know, high dollar adjusted oil prices to $300 when you adjust for how much the dollar's gone up. You know, you look at all these things and you say like, oil got one bullet on the last page of Bill Ackman's How We Defeat Inflation. Uh, you know, his, his whole pitch was basically, we jack up rates until people stop going to shopping malls. And you kind of say like, but when people decide to go to shopping malls again, won't inflation come back? You know, like, won't the exact same issues persist? And because when the Fed jacks rates, it historically also slows the rate of drilling, right? The energy industry is just as scared of a recession as the rest of the economy is. Like, why would I add a rig into a recession? And so, you know, the, these kind of, it's interesting that all of these super brains all across Wall Street talk about inflation and they don't even really look into the fact that there's been an energy cycle coincident with every inflationary cycle. And without an, inf an energy cycle, you never have an inflationary cycle. But yet people talk about inflation in terms of the Fed and Paul Volcker and, you know, does Jay Powell have the have the cojones of, of uh, Paul Volcker? And if he doesn't, we're in for a terrible decade, all that kind of stuff. And I think the one guy who has that institutional memory, you know, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are out there, you know, they're buying oxy stock like bros on Reddit, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean I can't buy more than 10% of daily volume? Like, Warren, like, chill out, <laughs> chill out, dude. You're not trying to blow up Melvin Capital here. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, yeah. you don't have to buy it this fast. But I think it's a good indicator of like guys who do remember that cycle kind of say like, this is kind of a sleep at night investment if you believe in the inflationary cycle, even though everyone looks at energy as the riskiest thing you can buy uh, in today's market. Um, you talked about a paper. Are you putting a paper out? Yeah. Do yeah, I get I mean, to get a copy of it? Do yeah, other absolutely. people get a copy Absolutely. You know, we, uh, one of the big things we do just, I mean, for our own, I'll say for our own uh, kind of investment process, as well as our own sanity, right? Like, wait, what happened? Like, hey, in the middle of the biggest energy cycle ever, energy went down 25% for no reason in 1974. Like, okay, okay, you know, like <laughs> it's happened. It's not just us. Uh, 
But but yeah, the the paper will be out on our website, recurrentadvisors.com. Uh in, you know, as of the time this video gets published, uh it, it should be on our website. And obviously we'll send you a copy. And uh yeah, look, I more than anything, I hope it starts an interesting debate because there are a lot of folks out there that just say, you know, COVID proved. COVID proved recessions are bad for energy. And you say like, well, that was the most mobility targeted recession in human history. Maybe not the perfect analog for all other recessions. And going the thing forward. I still say is, I mean, we shut the world down and we were still using 80 million barrels of oil a day. Yeah. I mean, we shut it down. Yeah. No, that's exactly that's exactly right. I mean, how hard oil is to to kill in an economic sense should be very obvious post COVID. But, you know, the reality is, right, we everything you learned about investing, you learned it in your high school cafeteria. And when you walk into to a room uh, filled with allocators, and you're like, this guy's kind of the biggest talker, if he hates energy, that's kind of it. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. just like, like you, you kind of remember in high school, you'd be like, I don't know, I, I think Chelsea's pretty cute. And then like the one guy at the table was like, Brad thinks Chelsea's cute. And you're like, I will never say anything ever again. <laughs> and then when you go into a meeting and guys are like, I don't know, we could have a 1970s style inflationary episode. And like, you know, the 38 year old CIO is like, wow, this guy doesn't understand that technology destroys inflation over time. Do you, do you have you not read any, any books about what Silicon Valley's done to the economy? And you're like, Okay, the CIO said that we can uh, shuffle our feet to the exits at this point. So here's my 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 piece of advice for you when you're out fundraising and you run into that person. Make the analogy to Stranger Things because you can at least get them back to the <laughs> 80s, right? You can at least get them back. You can at least get them back there. Yeah, that's, there you go. Yeah, exactly. It's no, it's good advice. I mean, I think like the 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 reality is it took eight years for the United States to wake up to investment is the only cure for inflation. Well, I should say like it took six to eight years. And so if we're in year two of our inflationary episode, we're still in deep in the denial phase. And it feels like acceptance of the, hey, you actually have to drill wells if you want oil price to go down. You can't just build solar and ask Saudi Arabia for more oil. We're still kind of going through the deny and ask for more solar phase. And, you know, uh, and it might I hope it doesn't take as many years as it did in the 70s and 80s, but it's a reminder that it takes a while for civilization to realize that like denial and punishment are not the ways to uh, cure an investment shortage. So I'll close uh, with this. I was having drinks with a very prominent investor and his or her prediction was a trouncing of Biden in the November midterm elections and that shortly thereafter, we will actually see incentives for drilling out of this White House. Now, I don't know that I believe that. I don't know that I can see that happening, but that was the prediction. And to your point. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. <laughs> there we go. Brad, thanks for coming on. It was Thank good to you, see Chuck. you again. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs>